Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Friday, September 16, 2022, and today will be better than yesterday. I'm Buster Only, working for my home in Montana, and Sarah Abbott is running the show from the Sarah Abbott Studios. Uh, Sarah, you're taking over because Taylor Schwink uh, decided to go on vacation someplace where there's no Wi-Fi. What's that about? I know. He said he, he was hilarious about it. He's like, I'm going to the only place in America that doesn't have uh-huh. Wi-Fi, <laughs> which is great. A great escape. Yeah. Uh, and uh, do, we, do we really think that's a coincidence? And uh, I haven't asked you this question in regards to Taylor's uh, uh, when he takes these little three day sojourns over under a number of drinks consumed by Taylor during the three days. During the whole three days. Yeah. Oh. Because I think he would put it in somewhere in the range of 40 to 41. I was going to say maybe like 25. But if he would put (laughs) it in the range of 40 to 41, then I might take the over on that. Well, we'll we'll get a report back from Taylor when he returns on Monday. Thursday was Roberto Clemente Day, celebration of Clemente all around baseball uh, before the games are played. And sometimes in games, the Tampa Bay Rays use an all Latin American starting lineup on the day. And guess what happened? Yandy Diaz out of Cuba got it done. Yandy waits the pitch. Swing and a long drive to left field. This was on its way to the Toronto bullpen. Gone! Three-run homer, Yandy Diaz, and it's 4 nothing Rays. Manuel Margot from the Dominican Republic. He had a three-run hit as well. Runners go the 3-2 pitch. Line drive left center field into the open space. It goes all the way to the wall, and here they come. A Rosarena scores. Franco scores. Wall scores. Three-run double by Margot. It's 11 to nothing. Rays leaving their mark here in Toronto. That sound from 620 WDAE. At City Field, they held a ceremony. This month will mark the 60th anniversary of Clemente's 3,000 hit in Chase Stadium against the Mets' John Matlack. A lot of previous winners were on hand. And Francisco Lindor, grew up, born and raised in Puerto Rico, came through with a big hit. Lindor is wearing special cleats tonight, designed just for this day, Roberto Clemente Day, and his gloves as well. The first pitch. He rips one to right, way back toward the Coca-Cola corner. It's gone. Home run, Francisco Lindor. Mets win that game 7-1. to That sound from WCBS. After the game, Lindor talked about hitting a home run on Roberto Clemente Day. Special. It's great. You know, uh, just a day like today that we are um, remembering him and honoring him, that I was able to do one of the many things he did. And come up with a W, which I'm sure he's happy. Buck Showalter talked about Francisco Lindor. First of all, I know it's a big night for him. You know, I I told you guys earlier, I I thought about last night, DH in the day, and then I knew what a big night it is for him with uh, Roberto Clemente. I know that meant a lot to him. He's uh, just been a rock for us in so many ways. He's just certain things you, you. Put over in the, I can count on that column. And uh, Francisco's been one of those guys. We've got a lot of guys like that. Now, before the game, the Mets announced a decision. Sandy Alderson will step down as president of the team when the club finds his replacement. The 74-year-old Alderson, a cancer survivor, has served two stints as New York's general manager, will move to a new role as special advisor 
donors, Steve and Alex Cohen and the senior leadership team. I've got a theory about what's going to happen in the future for the Mets. The most notable movement in the standings yesterday came in the American League Central. The White Sox playing in Cleveland against the Guardians, and they went off. Here was Andrew Vaughn. Here comes the 0-2, and there's a line drive out into the left, and it is gone! They've gone back-to-back. 3-0. That from ESPN 1000, the White Sox win 8-2. The Twins played the Royals, and Nick Gordon came through with a big hit in the bottom of the second. 1-0 pitch, a high fly ball, right field and deep. Back it goes, deep it goes, and gone. Second deck and then some for Nick Gordon, number seven. And the Twins regain the lead. It's a 3-1 score here at Target Field. That was Corey Provis on the Treasure Island Baseball Network. At the end of the day, the Guardians lead the White Sox by three games in the American League Central and the Twins by four games. The Padres have been struggling of late, and they face the Diamondbacks and were shut down again. Cattell Marte getting a big hit for the Diamondbacks in the bottom of the fourth. And a shot to left center. That's going to gap it all the way toward the wall and gone. A home run by Marte on the first pitch of the fourth inning. Diamondbacks take a one nothing lead. That from 98.7 FM. After the Padres were shut out 4 to nothing with their lead reduced in for the sixth and final playoffs uh, spot in the National League to one and a half games over the Brewers, Bob Melvin, Padres manager, talked with great frustration about how he felt like the team lacked fight. Very frustrating. It didn't even feel like we even put up a fight. So that's uh, can't play this way, especially this time of year. You know, we're more concerned about us right now than the other team, and, and we're not holding up our end of the bargain. When you don't hit, it doesn't look great, but it's the way you go about it. The way we're going about it right now does not look good to me. Sarah, what else you got? All righty, Buster. So first off, NFL season is back, so make sure you check out the Dominique Foxworth show. I am a producer on that show alongside one of my great colleagues, Christina, and we have so much fun on there. He brings on his wife to give out a rose and a thorn every week goes through games, goes through picks. It's a lot of fun, so be sure to check that out. Also, we have the Mina Kime Show featuring Lenny, and they react every Tuesday to highlight the winners and losers from the weekend, and she also brings on Dominique Foxworth. And also be sure to check out Kyle Brandt's Basement, and that is on Sunday through Thursday. It's a great show. He brings on Josh Allen every Tuesday, so what's better than that? You might have heard of it. You can now stream the most Major League Baseball games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your Major League Baseball games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECT-TV or visit directtv.com. That's D-I-R-E-C-T-V.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip codes and requires choice package. 
Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN. Get great deals and the hottest tickets. Experience it live. All aboard. It's the Ravi Train with Carl Ravitch. On Baseball Tonight. The Ravi Train, Carl Ravitch, play-by-play man for Sunday Night Baseball. And on Saturday, Ravi, going to be doing some play-by-play on radio. Dodgers-Giants in San Francisco. Get to work with my buddy, Doug Glanville. I get a little radio feel as we get ready for the uh, postseason. I think my buddy Tim Kirchner and I are going to be calling a division series, so it's a little warm-up. And it's a whole different different ball game when you're doing radio versus television, as you well know. And uh, sitting next to somebody like Doug, you know, gives you a whole other look at the game. Not only has he done the radio all year, but he, he just looks at things in a different way. And, you know, it's a game that doesn't really mean a lot as far as the standings go. The Dodgers are already the West winners. The Giants aren't going anywhere. Um, but it will allow us to talk about all the things that we're going to talk about on the podcast. And I, I like his perspective as kind of that role player guy, uh, big city, and his his thoughts on, on where the Dodgers stand is arguably one of the one of the great teams of all time, or certainly one of the great teams that we've ever seen play. Maybe I should coach it that way. Yeah, uh, and I'm curious about sort of where he you know, puts the Dodgers in that regard, given the concerns they have at the back end of their bullpen. It does seem like there's a good chance this weekend that you're going to be able to call the final out of the Dodgers 100th win on the season, uh, which would be remarkable. Uh, Thursday, of course, Roberto Clemente Day. Uh, you know, we saw so many great scenes around baseball. I love the whole Tampa Bay lineup. Uh, you know, Latin American players uh, comprised nine players in that lineup. Uh, you saw the scenes at uh, City Field last night. All the Roberta Clemente Award winners, you know, joined together. Uh, Francisco Lindor hitting a home run. What jumped out to you? Well, I mean, what jumps out every year, and in talking to the players that have won it uh, and been involved with uh, the sort of voting on it. I don't know, Buster, that there is, at least in the players' eyes, a more significant award uh, that you can be recognized for. And I think they hesitate to even call it a, an award. Um, you know, pl- players tend to, we, we always in our line of work, especially in television, want to learn more about the player. The, the, it's amazing, and I guess I, under- I do understand it, because I certainly am involved with a variety of causes, they don't seek the attention for the things that they do um, off the field, you know, away from the branding, if you will. And I know that when you sit next to former winners, you know, that is the recognition they speak of way more than it, literally than anything else. Um, I'm not sure how they would compare it to a most valuable player, but whether it's going to your, your country, whether it is doing something within your community, whether it's taking care of, of kids, uh, they, that resonates with them. And, you know, Lindor and the Mets needed a win. They won 7-1, and the focus was on Clemente and Puerto Rico and the, the bond and brotherhood and the significance of the man. So it, it really is. And I know we talk about it, but it, it really is something that the players take to heart. It's a significant, significant recognition. Uh, and the other part of it is when you look at those that are nominated, they, they run the gamut of the 30-player team. It's not just the stars. You know, there's, there's guys that are the 24th player that are 
getting recognized. So that part of it is really, really wonderful. And I know it means so much to those guys, but watching Lindor and the team and the celebration of Puerto Rico yesterday was really cool. I love the conversation every year about Clemente. Uh, you know, I was just becoming a baseball fan uh, just yeah. at the time, you know, in his last year, 1972, I, I told the story on radio yesterday about remembering we didn't have a television on our farm, uh, but, you know, we would get the, the New York Daily News. And I can remember the picture of Roberta Clemente standing at second base uh, with John Matlack in the foreground, the Mets pitcher who gave up that hit, you know, hit number 3000. I remember hearing on the radio months later. Uh, about Clemente passing away. I love looking at the highlights. I love, you know, you talk to players who competed against him to hear their stories. I mentioned, uh, you know, one of the most famous highlights for Clemente is this incredible throw that he made in the 1971 World Series. Merv Rettman uh, was going from second to third base. And I asked Merv, who was hitting coach later in life with the San Diego Padres, hey, what was that like? And he, at that time, he was very fast, but he said he, he was... Looking at third base as he's running in, he was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that I might get thrown out. And it was pure <laughs> panic setting in and just be, him being amazed by, uh, you know, by Clemente and that uh, and, and the throw and his physical ability. And I agree with you to see the meaning of this award to the, you know, those who've won it in the past, you know, and I know because we hear the stories behind the scenes when sometimes when major league teams put on these events. Uh, they put out the invite to the player and the players, nah, I don't know yeah. if I want to leave my yeah. home. I don't yeah. know if I want to go. And you saw all those guys yesterday. You saw Derek Jeter, uh, you know, on Major League Baseball Network doing interviews because of the meaning of the award. Yeah, and I'll say this. I mean, I guess this is the way I can relate what Roberto Clemente's name meant. And I think I may have told you this story last year around this time, but you know, I was a, like most, a baseball card collector, a baseball card flipper. I would put them in the bike spokes. But, but baseball uh, or tops always produced those extra large, almost cardboard baseball cards. Uh, they were probably, uh, you know, three by six, something like that. Uh, and, and I had a Roberto Clemente card, and I must have been about nine years old. Um, and and when Roberto Clemente passed away, I took the card, and I and I actually went over to my neighbor's house and we 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 buried it. You know, in a sense, we were, I was honoring Roberto Clemente. It never occurred to me to do that with any other baseball card for anybody else. But I took what probably was a fairly valuable large baseball card of Roberto Clemente. It was his head, you know. It was his face with the pirate hat on. It was it was very memorable in the way that he looked. And we buried the card. Uh, and given that it was made out of cardboard, it's obviously gone and you know disintegrated. But for for a for a kid, for a little boy who lived in you know the suburbs of Boston, to somehow recognize that there is a major significance to the passing of Roberto Clemente such that you would go grab this cardboard car to his and bury it. Uh, now, as I sit here as a 50, 57 year old guy. Yeah. You know what? There, there, he did stand out. There was something incredibly meaningful about him. And at that point I probably didn't even recognize what it was, but it was enough to make me do something like that. Yep. Yeah. He, 
he made a strong impression on everybody, whether it was, you know, seven, eight year olds or, uh, you know, his uh, fellow major leaguers. You know, there's that heartbreaking story that anybody who's read a biography of Clemente knows this. Uh, after his plane went down, his longtime teammate, Manny Sanguian, day after day after day, donned scuba gear and went into the waters where the plane went in and, and looked for his body uh, because he was heartbroken. And so to see Manny tweet yeah. out yesterday about Clemente, uh, that, that was very moving. All right. Before uh, the Mets game last night, the Mets announced that Sandy Alderson, the team president, is stepping down from that role. Uh, he will move into an advisory capacity. I, this was not a surprise, Carl. I mean, you know, and I know that titles, you, you know, you have a title, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have power. I think because of the disappointing events for the Mets in 2021 with Jared Porter and with Zach Scott, uh, Steve Cohen basically, you know, took over the the, the baseball operations in effect, uh, you know, hires Billy Epler. And there was an expectation within the organization that Sandy Alderson would be out of that role uh, when his contract expired this year. And I think moving forward, the big question people around baseball have, will the Mets go out and hire a David Stearns of the Milwaukee Brewers to work in tandem with Billy Epler? David Stearns is going to be a free agent this fall, potentially, if he decides to leave the Brewers. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we've all you know, generally those of us that are in this world recognize that, that Stearns was once, you know, I hate to use the pun, but the apple of the eye of, of Cohen and, uh, you know, the Brewers weren't going to let him go at that point. So yeah, he's available. Theo Epstein is always out there. And for anybody in, uh, in, in, in a city like that with playoff and world series aspirations, as high as they are, uh, given his track record, you have to think about him uh, the, the, one of the wild cards knowing what his desires are in all of the world of baseball depending how this season ends um and i assume buster they're not going to name anybody before the year ends uh, i think buck buck Showalter would would throw his name into consideration for a position like that and again th this would be in concert with billy epler i don't think he would ever supersede him and say, Hey, I want that. Or I, but I think, I think many of the managers we know, including Buck have aspirations to move from that position into a position where you actually put the team together. Um, for those that knew Bill Parcells, you know, this is the whole, let me buy the groceries. If I'm going to be in there, you know, preparing the meal, I think somebody like Buck would be very interested in the position like that. So uh, I don't even know if it's a wild card, but the names we talked about, again, depending on the season ends, that wouldn't shock me to see that be given some consideration, or at least in his world, be given consideration. Yeah, uh, and there, you know, and I know that there are very few managers probably who would have the, you know, the background, the ability to do something like that. The other day, I, I asked AJ Hinch on this podcast about you know, the question of, of whether or not he would ever think about moving into the front office from his role as manager. And he talked about how much he loved managing. Uh, I've always thought of Alex Cora as been someone who could basically yeah, yeah, uh, surrounded yep. by, you know, surrounded by folks who, uh, you know, more into the rules and, and would help him with the management. I think he would be excellent at running a baseball operations department. And Buck, you know, demonstrated with the Diamondbacks uh, that uh, he's capable of of taking on a larger role like that. So we'll we'll see where the Mets go with this. This weekend, I mentioned we got Dodgers, Giants, and yesterday we had a 
a conference call, uh, our weekly get-together to talk about this Sunday's game. And one of the conversations that popped up uh, came out of some numbers that our friend Sarah Langs gave us about how the Dodgers, one, two, three in their lineup, uh, all rank in the top 10 in Major League Baseball and war. And in fact, as Sarah notes, uh, if in, they finish the year with that standing, they would be the first team in history to have a number one, number two, and number three hitters in their lineup finish in the top 10 in the majors in war. And I, you know, with my, uh, as I usually do, sweeping statements, uh, it came in and said, <laughs> you know what? Uh, they could be uh, the greatest one, two, three hitters in all of baseball. And without thinking that Eduardo Perez, uh, has, who has a special connection with those big red machine teams of the 1970s, came back and said, you know, Pete Rose, and Ken Griffey Sr. and Joe Morgan, those guys are pretty good too. <laughs> uh, so what's, uh, I mean, just uh, right off the off the bat, what do you think about that possibility that we might be looking at the best one, two, three combination in the history of baseball? Yeah, and look, I I hear I agree with the I agree with the concept kind of in a bubble. Um I think those other groups whose names pop up on the list that you and Sarah worked on, DiMaggio, Rizzuto, Berra, Morgan, Bench, Rose, Foster, Morgan, Rose. I, I think what those, you know, what those names and those groupings have in common is they, they seem to have done it for multiple years. Um, I think in a history book, when you look back statistically, as somebody will do, as the next Sarah Langs, Buster only, Carl Ravitch will do 30 years from now, those three names will pop up as one of the greatest trios, let alone a unique one, two, three combo. But historically, and again, this is where it gets blurry. Historically, if they're only together one year and Trey Turner leaves, well, it kind of gets lost in, well, they did it for a year and did they win a world series with it, et cetera, et cetera. So sure. Statistically, uh, yeah, I mean, as, as good as any, the qualities and characteristics of what they do individually is incredibly unique. And if they do bring back Trey Turner, then they, to me, they will be uh, assuming success in that same group with those historically great names. But with all due respect, you know, Trey Turner isn't Pete Rose. He, he's not Johnny Bench. You know, they're, they're not yet Yogi Berra. But those are those are historically great names in baseball. The three we talked about, while while they may end up in the Hall of Fame, you know they're not yet Hall of Famers. All the other guys' names that we mentioned are. So on Sunday night, we'll have a, an interesting backstory on how it came to be that Dave Roberts settled on these three guys batting uh, first, second, and third. Uh, I, I would say, Carl, I, you know, I went back after hearing Eduardo. And, and I looked up, you know, to compare the players and see if that was completely out of line, suggest that these three might be the best one, two, three ever uh, in a given season. I think that's going to be an important qualifier because of what you say. You know, this might not last. Trey Turner could walk away as a free right. agent. But it's interesting. I, I think you would agree with me. Joe Morgan is arguably one of, I mean, he is one of the greatest second best basemen of all time. I would have him as the best second baseman of all time. Yes. You and I are in agreement to that. Yes. Yep. Yep. Okay. Pete Rose, the all-time hit king. Uh, and the reason why he's not in the Hall of Fame, we know, because he's banned up from baseball. But fact is, when he played, he was an impact player. Uh, and then you have Ken Griffey Sr., 2,143 hits, 152 homers, uh, 200 stolen bases. He had one top 10 finish for MVP. 
Uh, I think you would agree with me that Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman, there's a good chance both of these guys are going to make a speech in the Hall of Fame. Betts has already won an MVP, and twice he's finished second. And then you have Freddie Freeman, who's won an MVP award. Uh, he next year will pass 2,000 career hits. He's going to go over 3, 000, or 300 career homers. Trey Turner is 29. He's already got over 1,000 hits. He's already got 123 homers, 227 stolen bases, two top 10 finishes for MVP, which means that in his career, it's very possible he's going to wind up accomplishing more than Ken Griffey Sr. So I, I don't know, Carl. After I looked at these numbers, I'm like, you know, I think we could make an argument they are one, two, three. <laughs> uh, well, again, I think sometimes we're so close to these players and you think historically, wow, Joe Morgan, oh my gosh, Joe right. DiMaggio, Yogi Berra. So, yeah, look, I think sometimes we, we tend to, because we are close, not, not be able to give just what you did there, the perspective and context of how great Mookie Betts really is. Yes. How good a hitter Freddie Freeman really is. Yes. Turner, Turner's kind of the X factor in all this because as dynamic as he is, and he is dynamic, and when you would judge him against great shortstops of all time, there's work to do. And that really only comes from longevity, assuming the same production, that yes, I, I understand your point. And again, I, I'm not straddling the fence, but, but being so close is a caveat to all of it, because sometimes you diminish the actual greatness, but you also recognize it's got to be done for a significant period of time to get on the larger Mount Rushmore of baseball players. But all three of them are very capable of doing it. And yes, sometimes I think we take Mookie Betts for granted. And look, every one of those guys we mentioned had periods like Mookie Betts where, and he will acknowledge it, for about a month, I stink. I'm just not very good. And then there are, then there are four months where he's the best player in the game, in a game that features the likes of Otani and Judge and Mike Trout. The Mookie Betts is in and will always be in that conversation for generationally great player. But again, sometimes you're so close to it, you just don't appreciate how great he really is. No, I completely agree with you. I think you, you said it perfectly. Uh, last night, Bob Melvin <laughs> did not have perfect words about his Padres uh, talking out loud about how he felt like his team lacked fight. Uh, I think you and I both thought that the Brewers were done, you know, two weeks ago with their struggles, the Cardinals taking off in the National League Central. But the Padres are playing the Brewers back into this, which is shocking to me, Carl, considering where we were with the Padres at the trade deadline. Yeah, again, you know, how often do do teams make deals and the assumption right away is, oh, my God, they, they win the World Series. That, like that's the, Oh, they just put themselves in the World Series favorite. And to see them not have success, what uh, we'll probably have to figure out is the impact of the Soto, of the Tatis issue on the team. I don't know yeah, that we've right. got our heads around that. And I'm not certain that that wasn't such a devastating blow that they all never really recovered. They probably wouldn't be able to articulate how significant it was, but it certainly feels like since that happened, they, they've just had like an energy sap. Like they have been dramatically impacted negatively because not only did they make the deal, we're getting one of the best players in baseball back, 
and that never happened. Well, and you got to believe that, that because of that, that, uh, you know, as Fernando Tati Jr. begins to work his way back to being eligible to play next year, that mountain in front of him in terms of what he needs to do to have redemption with his teammates is yeah. going to be enormous. There'll be players on that team who'll say, you know why we didn't make the playoffs? If they don't make the playoffs, it's because of that guy. And there are going to be a lot of people pretty upset. Uh, about that situation. Before we go, I want to ask you about the American League Central. We saw the White Sox uh, continue their hot stretch uh, yesterday, uh, ending the Cleveland winning streak, you know, hitting a bunch of home runs. Carl, it feels like that we have a situation developing with the White Sox. Tony LaRusso has been away from the team and they're playing great with Miguel Cairo. Quite frankly, I don't yeah. know how you change back. What do you think? Would I bring Tony LaRusso back to manage? I think I, I would not. I, I really ought to have respect for Tony and his health. And I'd say, look, things are going really well. Let's just keep it status quo. You're, you're just not 100% healthy, and I'm worried about that. Like, I don't, I'm not going to take the risk, A, on your health, and then B, upsetting the apple cart. Let, let's just run this out, see where it goes, and we'll talk about next year. So that, that would be my answer to leaving it alone. I will say in the Central, I think – as close as we just sort of reference being to players, are, are we too close to the Guardians to really consider them what they are, which is the best team in that division? Because it, it, it's quite clear the narrative going into the postseason is avoid everybody but the Guardians. Go ahead and deal with them. And, I, boy, be careful there. They always can pitch. Francona knows how to manage in the postseason. Ramirez is, again, a, a top-five MVP guy. I think sometimes we dismiss, and this is where I think the White Sox may get a little inflated, the Guardians are a really, really solid, good baseball team, and I don't think I don't think they get caught, and I just don't think the White Sox have the talent to do what Paul Westhead did. Yeah, and if Cleveland gets into the, you know, wins the American League Central, they, of course, would host the first round, which means all the games are in Cleveland with that great yeah. pitching, with a lineup filled with guys who put the ball in play. That's what Cleveland's put together this year. And I agree with you. You know, I think generally speaking, we think of because Tito's been in baseball his whole life, uh, you know, through his father, uh, we think of him as being an old school guy. I think of him as being at one of the forerunners at the forefront of the way bullpens are used in 2016 when he really used Andrew Miller as the guy who would come in to wipe yep. out yep. high leverage situations. Uh, and, and it feels like that a lot of managers followed him after that in terms of uh, utilizing their best weapons in the biggest spots. He's got great weapons. He uses them as well as anybody. And he, Dusty Baker, those guys, um, they, they, there's a unique ability to get stuff out of players that, Again, I understand some of the criticisms of those guys uh, on certain levels, but I agree with you that Francona was masterful the way he used his bullpen and will and will and is doing it again this year. And how about his suggestion? How about the fire we saw from Francona a couple of days ago? I haven't seen him that angry, that upset, that into it uh, in a long, long time, which to me was a, kind of a little shot across the bow. Hey, don't forget about me and don't discount us we'll see you in october yep you're 100 right all right carl uh good to talk with you thanks for doing this and i will see you at the ballpark tomorrow looking forward to it see you this weekend it's only a kick 
a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Jessica Mendoza is an analyst for ESPN. Uh, she will be on Sunday Night Baseball this weekend. Jess, how are you doing? Good. I'm excited for the weekend and honestly, like this time of year. <laughs> I mean, this is where you're watching, especially a couple divisions of wildcard grace every single day. You're looking up, trying to check, you know, like where everybody is. I I I love it because this is, you know, what you kind of want throughout the entire season. Um, but with 162, you definitely get it this last few weeks. Yeah, at least we get two division races, right? The team that yeah. you see the most of, the Dodgers, the, the question is how many wins they're going to wind up with. Is it going to be 110? I've got a question about the Dodgers and the top of their lineup for you in a bit. Uh, but first, I didn't know this. You sent me a text last night about how the reason why you wore number 21 was Roberta Clemente. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, it's funny because I, I posted something um, on my social about it, you know, yesterday being R Roberto Clemente Day. And um, I had a couple of my Stanford teammates that were like, you never told us this. Like, how have we not known this? And really? Yeah. I, and not that I was like, nah, I think when you're younger, you don't, you know, share like, I guess the things. And, and to me, especially at Stanford, I think that would have been a really great platform to educate people on who Roberto Clemente was, especially a lot of my softball teammates that I'm sure probably did not know a lot about his story, at least maybe knew the name. Um, so I kind of regret that, honestly. And I thought I had, um, I think it was probably in my bio. Um, at Stanford, but it's not something that I just went around and shared. That was just more of a personality trait. Um, but now, like, it's something that I sing from the rooftops. I want people to know, and especially, I think, generationally, like, even my kids, um, my youngest son wears number 21 now. And so I tell him, and he wears it because I wore it, but then I tell him why I wore it so we can kind of pass this down. But ultimately, Buster, my biggest reasoning, um, and I started to wear it uh, my freshman year of high school, um, because I wanted to make an impact more than just on the field. And that was always a goal of mine is to not just be the athlete. I mean, obviously there's a slew of numbers that you could choose, uh, that, you know, are the best players and all of, all of those things. But I think the way that Clemente lived his life and obviously even in death, um, was something that I definitely wanted to exemplify. And, um, I wish that I had just told more people at a younger age, but definitely something I'm proud of. I've always been yeah. proud of. Yeah, I, uh, you know, wore the same number all through Little League and high school and and playing games uh, obviously didn't have as much of an impact as you. And I don't have as cool of a story. I wore number three because Bud Harrelson of the Mets was a really good bunter. OK, oh, my gosh, that's actually yeah. a great story because it's number three. So, like, well, everyone's going to assume the opposite. <laughs> 
right. Exactly. Uh, well, you know, when you're you, when you uh, are five foot nothing and you weigh 100 and nothing uh, and you were left a bunt, you know, that's how you wind up with Bud Harrelson's number. How did oh, you first learn about Clemente? My dad, um, you know, I, I really love how much he educated me um, and it was always in teaching. So when he talked about Clemente, it was a lot about his game. Um, and I was I was born in the 80s. So, you know, it wasn't that I got a chance to see him play. But my dad was already coaching, obviously, through Clemente's career and being Hispanic. And honestly, for both my father and his father, um, being in America as baseball players, you know, it, it meant a ton to see Clemente do what he did at the time that he did it. Um, and they were glued to the television, I think, like so many. Um, and to have, you know, even though my 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 family is Mexican, not Puerto Rican, um, but I think it just talks, it, it says so much about how important it is to see someone that, you know, looks like you, to see someone that speaks like you, to know background, understand, and, and just the way that he played the game. I mean, my dad talked about him, honestly, more about the five tools that he had, the fact that he was always looking for how to get a hit, reading the defense, um, speed, looking how to take an extra base. Defense was a priority for Clemente, um, that it wasn't about the big hit um, home run, like, but really about the craft and making sure that you're consistently improving on the, the, the small things and not the big things. And that's the way he talked about Clemente. Um, and then I didn't find out until later how he died, which was interesting. Um, but my, my dad really just talked about the importance of what Clemente did for our family um, and just how much it encouraged basically like I know for him and his brothers to, you know, continue to be in the field of baseball as my dad was a head baseball coach. Yeah. And I think because of how he died in some respects, it's interesting that you learned about his career before about his, his legacy, you know, that they award his name for, uh, because I do think because of, of how he passed away, that's overshadowed how great of a player that he was. You know, we, we always talk about Derek Jeter being a, a guy who liked the big stage, 200 career hits in the postseason. Well, Roberto Clemente played in 14 World Series games and he got a hit in every single one. If oh, you wow. ever want to have fun, go and and uh, I know you've done this, uh, go and watch video from him in the 1971 World Series, like yeah. making throws, hitting home runs, you know, delivering in a big moment. Uh, I believe it's right. He hit a home run in game seven when uh, when they won, uh, they beat the uh, Orioles two to one in that game. And he he was in the middle of it. Really yeah, remarkable player in, in how well rounded he was, too. So, yeah, no. And I think, honestly, that's what I appreciate from my dad, because I didn't get a chance to see him play. I mean, same with him and Mickey Mantle were the two that he talked about the most. Um, and Satchel Page, actually. Satchel Page was talked about a ton from my dad, which was also very interesting, like triangle of very three very different players. Um, but I I appreciate it because I thought Clemente, like everything I knew about him was just how great of an athlete, all which was important because you're right. If you look him up, it is about the legacy, how he died. Um, which is also important, but it helped me and also gives you a great understanding of my dad being a coach <laughs> because that's what was always first is like the tools, like these are the things and this is what you're going to be like. These are the people that um, I want you to set the example for this. So Carl Ravitch and I just had a conversation about the top of the Dodgers lineup. You know, we're getting ready for Giants and Dodgers on Sunday night. And I asked our friend Sarah Langs to look up the last time because I noticed on uh, Fangraph's list of top players and wins above replacement, the Dodgers have three of the top 10. 
And they're all the guys at the top of the lineup, Mookie Betts and Trey Turner and Freddie Freeman. Uh, and as Sarah discovered, if the Dodgers wind up having those three guys in the top 10 in war, it'll be the first time in baseball history that a team will have the number one, number two, and number three hitters uh, all in that spot. And then, you know, so I mentioned on our call yesterday, prep call for Sunday night, uh, you know, this could be the best one, two, three in the history of baseball. Uh, and Eduardo Perez immediately chimed in, oh, yeah, the, the big red machine had Pete Rose and Ken Griffey Sr. and Joe Morgan. And we were going back and forth on it. And I just presented Carl some numbers that really demonstrate that these three guys, Betts and Freeman, I think will make speeches in the Hall of Fame for sure already. Uh, and, and Trey Turner is a guy who's on a trajectory where he was, could be in the conversation if he plays another six, seven years that we could be talking about maybe the best one, two, three hitters in all of baseball history. You see him on a regular basis. What do you think? Well, I, I 100% agree. And, you know, it's hard because you do go back in different times and different styles and like, you know, what the big red machine was for that time, you know, so it ends up being a whole entire conversation around like eras and what's happening. And which to me is why these three stand out even more. And it's because like to me, especially when you take Freddie Freeman and Trey Turner, because they hit for average along with the power. Like they, they in a time when you don't see batting averages the way that they're at right now, you don't see the priority on taking the hit when it's given to you. I mean, shoot, Trey T Turner leads all of baseball at infield singles, you know, but has you know twenty plus home runs and his ability, what he can do in a multitude of ways. Um, these type of athletes, you know, and obviously Mookie Betts. I mean, talk about all around everything. You know, I, I love his defense more than I love anything else he even does at the plate. And that that's not saying that I don't love what he does in the batter's box, but that's how much defense, if you talk to Mookie, which you guys have even live on Sunday Night Baseball as he's playing defense, how that is the number one thing he prioritizes and how much he takes pride in what he does defensively. Um, and Freddie Freeman. I mean, I, I know I've, I've said this story, but like he'll spend his entire pregame warmup just hitting ground balls to a shortstop, like literally just working on staying inside out the, the intricacies of his own swing that he understands what makes it work, the control. So knowing all this, like that's my bias is because in this era, in a time when it's strikeouts and home runs, those three stand out even more for the type of game that they have, what they do, and really being selfless players. Like Mookie and Freddie, especially just spending time with them, they are so like very much about how is my back going to help the team today? Like legitimately, if I need to get on base to make sure that the ones behind me are going to be able to, to, to get me in, um, is this a scenario? Rarely is it that I need to hit a home run. It, it's always how can I advance a runner? How can I... You know, and, and that to me is is a rare quality in 2022. So let me ask you this, because you've been in a situation where you've been in an on-deck circle waiting for a start of an inning and you're talking to your teammates standing there and you have an approach. Um, how do you think that Betts, Turner, and Freeman uh, have an impact on each other from day to day during the at-bats? In other words, what do you think they sort of take away from each other, if anything? They definitely watch each other. I mean, that's that's something. And then they communicate. And it starts like, and I, I say this is rare. I was actually just telling someone the other day is, you know, you get on the Dodgers bus, any team bus, right? And it's it's headphones and music. And, and understood. I mean, you're talking 162 every single day. Like you get on and you, you just kind of like tune out. Well, 
you know, Mookie and Freddie are the two that like pull the headbuds out and they're just constantly talking, like, you know, communicating to each other. And, and a lot of it could be family stuff, it could be kids stuff, wife stuff, whatever. But a lot of it, especially the day of the game, going to the field is who they're facing, you know, what they're, you know, thinking that day. And it's impressive to me. And I even asked them, like, especially Mookie. Mookie is so grateful for the fact that Freddie is on their team. And he said, selfishly, I've benefited the most. Like, he's such a leader for all of us. But he's like, I pick his brain all the time. And, you know, I'm not in the dugout, but I assume that those three are, are watching with their eyes, but also the lines of communication. When when you have like the best players ask, like there's always an ego thing. Like that's what I've noticed, Buster. I know you've worked with the best players, right? And been around them. There's always this ego of like, well, I don't, you know, God, is it okay to ask? Like, I'm, I don't need to ask. Like for a variety of reasons, you never see the best players seek information. Now they're always giving it and they're very kind in that way, but to have the best players seek from others, not only does that share, but it also lifts everyone else up to do the same. And that's what I see with that Dodgers lineup at the top is they set the tone for everyone else and in the baseball sense, but also in the communication and how to truly be a teammate. So let me ask you this, as you mentioned the, the communication and them talking uh, is if you are Freddie Freeman and you're, you know, you're batting third and Mookie Betts comes back and he said, yeah, this is what he's got. This is the way his ball's moving. Uh, that it, because it's coming from Mookie Betts, does that give you more faith in a, you know, in a, someone that you're playing with a every day and two is a great player. Um, I mean, if the answer is no, like, that's okay. I'm curious. I, I mean, I honestly, like it's hard. I, I don't know. Freddie's mind, honestly, for me personally, as a left-handed hitter, like Freddie Freeman, I want to know from the lefties. Right. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. So Trey Turner is like, more likely to learn something from yes. Mookie than Okay. Yes. And that's, that's just me personally, because the righties would come in and they'd have, and it's not like you're not taking in information because a lot of it could be counts and different things. But at the end of the day, it's, it's very different, very yeah. different um, on approach left-handed to right-handed. And so that, that would be my hesitation um, would be, you know, I, I want to know what Cody, you know, like any of the lefties that are ahead of me, Muncie, well, from the lineup before, once you've turned it over, um, that, that, that's always me. I'm always going to the lefties. <laughs> okay. Well, that makes complete sense. You know, that's why you see when uh, you see players, uh, pitchers play catch before games out in the outfield, righties with righties, lefties with lefties, et cetera. Yep. You know, because they, they uh, want to be able to understand what the, the, the language that the other's talking about. Uh, we got a bleacher tweets from KJ uh, Garhart about that game with the Twins the other day when Joe Ryan was taken out after seven innings with a no-hitter in progress, 106 pitches. He asks, taking out a pitcher with a no-hitter going to the eighth is so disappointing. Why? Let him go for history. Was this purely an analytical move by the Twins? Uh, KJ, what I would say, and just I want to hear what you would say, is that in, in a sense, by having 106 pitches in, in the seventh inning, that made it easy. If it was in the eighth inning, I think that's when it becomes a difficult decision because I think Rocco Baldelli would have known at the end of seven, look, he's not going to finish this. He's not, we're not going to let him go to 135, 140 pitches. Jess, what do you think? Yeah, well, that was my first reaction because I didn't, I didn't see it live at all. I saw the reaction. Yeah. And like, I immediately looked for that. Cause I, yeah, my first reaction, I was like, Oh man, he had a no hitter going in the seventh and they took him out before you go back out there. And as a fan, you're always, always going <clears> to <throat> 
go want to go to what would have happened. Gosh, I would have been great for soon as I saw triple digits, I was like, wait in the seventh, like, Oh my gosh. Like, like he got lucky is what I, I thought, because instead of it being later, we're now it's like a Dave Roberts, you know, right. from a couple of years ago where you're really stressing in the dugout. What should I do with a young pitcher and Joe Ryan, by the way, um, you know, that to me is, is 100% like, okay, like there's, there's, you know, and I'm sure he was probably around triple digits as far as his cap. So it's like, he'd have to go two more innings. You understand that those two innings tend to be even longer because that's when you're more tired, you're struggling, you're, you know, trying to get through this. Um, and they're high, the highest stress innings, even more so when you're, you're the game's on the line, because this is something you're trying to make history with. So it's like a no brainer to me that what he, the decision he made now, if it was 86, I would have been freaking livid. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. That you didn't give him a chance to at least get through the eighth and see where the pitch count is at that point. All right. Yeah. Last one for you. Give me the team that you think is the biggest threat to the Astros in the American league. And I'm just going to tell you, there's only one right answer here. Uh, nobody. Really? Okay. <laughs> well, that's the wrong answer. I've already set that up. But you really believe that? You think the Astros are far and away, they, they, you know, put them in the World Series now? Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I know, and I got, I feel everybody, especially from the AL East, you know, because that is the division that, by the way, and we didn't talk about, but the wild card race is so exciting to me right now, too. And just that, that's what I'm so, like, just every single day, we're in a Seattle Mariner home, too. So, you know, watching all of that. But when I watch the Houston Astros, and, you know, it just, you know, watching from Valdez, or no, sorry, it was, uh, who was it last night with 11 strikeouts and, oh my gosh, it was just like continuing to be dominant on every aspect. Um, and Jordan Alvarez, the play, it just, I, I love watching that entire team. And when I look at the New York Yankees, um, and you watch the teams that I feel like would be what everyone would say, um, or any of the AL East teams, I feel like they're up and down too much in a way that the Houston Astros have been a lot more consistent. Okay, Lance McCullers. Thank had you. Had a great game last night. See, the answer I thought you would give, because you're living in the Northwest, would be the Mariners. And I mentioned this to your fellow Stanford stiff, A.J. Hinch, on the podcast the other day, and I said the fact that the Mariners played the Astros so much means a familiarity will... Oh. Sam, so you watched those games? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So you know, you know what I mean? You got a you got I've a good watched... Okay, go ahead. No, and I'm with trust me, we are a Seattle Mariners household. Like this is like my husband actually just got back from the Brave series. He was there the entire time in Seattle. Um, as he came back with all the details on how amazing this team is. I've watched those Astros Mariners series all season long. So maybe that's like where, yes, the familiarity, but I also feel like the Astros are just a much, much better team. Now, the beautiful thing about October is in a series that doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter over the course of what's happened throughout the entire year. You know, Seattle could just strike it right, especially getting in for the first time in 21 years. It could be a magical Cinderella type run. I don't think anyone's beating the Houston Astros the way I see them right now. No. Uh, and to your point that you sometimes it doesn't matter in October in 1988, when the Dodgers won the world series, the Kirk Gibson year, uh, they got through the National League Championship Series by beating the Mets. The Mets won 10 of 11 games from the Dodgers during the regular season. So yeah. they crushed them, and the Dodgers went on and, and still won the World okay. Series. Okay. That, right. that would make this house very happy. I would I would have a happy husband walking around if that happens. So. 
Well, there you go. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, Buster. Yankees manager Aaron Boone made his weekly appearance on the Michael K show with Aaron Judge in the news. And he was asked about whether or not he thinks Judge will hit at least 62 homers. I think he will. Um, I, I don't know that I've seen anything like this up close. Um, you know, obviously I played against Bonds going through that. Um, you know, I, but again, in context, I, you know, I just think it's, it's incredible. I mean, I, I mean, and I, I, I think I've said to you guys before, and I tell Aaron every now and then, I think I take him for granted because I, I feel like there's been games we come in and we're stand, I always stand next to him when we, when we win a game and we do our, you know, our little belt ceremony that we do after the game and, you know, he could have a game where he went like one for two with a couple of walks. And I'm like, man, I felt like he didn't have that good of a game. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I take him for granted sometimes. Booney talked about the American League MVP award. I get it. I mean, Otani is, it's unreal what he's doing on both sides of the ball. But, um, you know, when I look at what Aaron Judge is doing this year, and again, I, I it's it's in context of, the rest of the league. I mean, he's got an 1,100 OPS, and everyone else is, you know, Goldschmidt's probably within 100 of that or so, but everyone else is low 900s, 57 homers. The next guy's 37. You know, he's stealing bases. He's playing center field. He's gotten big hit after big hit. I mean, he's he's everything an MVP would ever be, and, and – uh so, yes, it is hard to, for me to envision him not winning the award. He was asked about Aaron Judge potentially leaving the Yankees. No, I don't go there. <laughs> Do you think he think will be back? That. Do you think he will be I back? I sure hope so. I, I sure hope so. <laughs> and he was asked about the comments of Jordan Montgomery of the St. Louis Cardinals. Monty's been a really good pitcher for us, and uh, – you know, and he's gone there and and had a good start to his Cardinal career. You know, pitching in a, you know, in a large ballpark in the National League Central, which frankly is a different animal than pitching in the American League East. So, um, you know, I always liked when when Monty threw his heater. So when when I saw that, I was like, oh, okay. But <laughs> look, I think it's probably something that you know the 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 actual quote gets a little bit overblown um Monty was an excellent pitcher for us will continue to be one moving forward um and and frankly I I hope he continues to do well I do wish him very well especially in the National League Bleacher Tweets all right Buster it's time for Bleacher Tweets and just a reminder Bleacher Tweets are brought to you by Dr. Pepper it ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper the ones fans deserve. So the first tweet comes from John Zengerler. Sorry if I butchered your name, John. When the Yankees were losing, I would still see highlights of Aaron Judge and I would get upset. It did not matter how well he was doing since the team was collapsing. Any stat that occurs while the team is losing is just padding your personal goals. Players from losing teams should not get MVP. Whoa, that's a take, John. <laughs> Yeah, well, John, first off, uh, you know, Aaron Judge is not only playing well, he's actually chasing history. That's part of the reason why you see his highlights, because uh, he has a chance to break the American League record for home runs. But also in the moment, 
do you think players are thinking that they're, you know, padding personal goals? No, if the Yankees are down six to four and Aaron Judge hits a home run to go six to five, is he really padding personal stats or is he trying to win the game in that moment? So I don't get it. Yeah, fine line between padding the game and trying to win the trying game. Trying to win. You're trying, trying to do well to for your team. <laughs> yeah. Next tweet is by Louisville Slugger. What Otani is doing is absolutely incredible, but it is not out of the realm of possibility. We've seen elite hitters as elite fielders, and if more teams allow that development, wouldn't we get more hitter pitchers, or am I missing something? You know, your question, Louisville, really uh, it got my brain thinking about that. Like when we talk about Otani as a two-way player, you know what? He's not a he's not a defender. He doesn't play any defense, and so. You know, yes, uh, he's a unique player in terms of his two-way uh, capabilities are with pitching and hitting. But on the other hand, if you have an elite defender uh, like a Mookie Betts and is also a great hitter, he's kind of a two-way player too. <laughs> um, no, in terms of developing, I, I I mentioned this before. I just I think Otani actually is is demonstrating he's such an outlier, and I don't think he's going to lead to this trend of teams saying, "Hey, we're going to." You know, try to develop players as both pitcher and hitter, because I think it's really hard to do. Next up is Andrew DeSalvo. Aaron Judge is the leading candidate for AL MVP, but how many GMs would take him first in a draft of all AL players if they were building a team from scratch and now trying to win? Wouldn't Otani go ahead of him or perhaps others too? Well, and Andrew mentioned trying to win now. That's the key word, now. Uh, I think Judge would be one of the first players taken. You're right. Uh, Otani would go ahead of him in a win-now league. And also, if uh, you were building a franchise because of the two-way capability. Um, but uh, win-now, I do think Judge would be regarded as one of the best guys because he is a lockdown defender. He's an excellent base runner. He's a great leader. He's a great hitter. Uh, and I just my conversations with executives around baseball, they're recognizing how great a player he is. You know, he he uh, what he's going to wind up being having the biggest gap. It looks like between him leading the league in home runs and the person who finishes second, the biggest gap since Babe Ruth. That's pretty special. Wow. Well, that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Be sure to submit your questions using hashtag Bleacher Tweets every day. If you like this podcast, make sure to leave a review. And of course, check us out on YouTube with Buster Segment with Tim. Thank you, everybody. That's it for today. My thanks to Carl, to Jess, to Sarah, not to Taylor. Man, he picked out a vacation spot without Wi-Fi. What's that about? Have a great day, everybody. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Allstate. 